0: Good morning. Uh, nobody can roast you like your kids. And when my daughter Kendall saw what I was wearing today, she said, "You got the dad starter pack kit on today." <laughs> Thanks, Kendall. Uh, <laughs> hey, it's great to be here today. But I want to just uh, start before I get into the message with a, uh, just a quick prayer. Lord, we come to you this morning um, um, with with all the mix of life, um, whether it's joy. And sorrow, whether it's confidence or it's anxiety. Uh, Lord, there's just, there's so much going on, Lord. And, and even this morning, you, you know, seeing all the things that are going on in the news, we just see a world that is is torn up. And one part of the world may seem like it's thriving and another one is falling apart. And so, Lord, we just lament that today, um, what's happening in, in Israel and Palestine and the senseless loss of life. We lament that and we say, Lord, we don't have answers to how to fix these things. We just pray uh, that you would step in. Um, Lord, for, for, for conflicts that are happening all over the world, it just seems like it never ends, Lord. And we just pray for peace. Um, Lord, we pray for, for, uh, for us all to see each other. You know, whether our, our nationality is Israeli or Palestinian or Ukrainian or Russian, can we just see each other as people created in the image of God and start there? It just seems like such a mess. We don't even know how to pray, but your word tells us that that when we groan, even then you understand what we need. And so, Lord, we do. We groan on behalf of all who are hurting today. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. This morning, we're going to finish our series on um, soul care, and and the the word we've been focusing on is health. And so, we talked about. You know, what does it look like to have relational health? What does it look like uh, to deal with mental health? And, and, and last week, how do you seek health in your life after do, going through something traumatic? Today, I want to talk about healthy discipleship. And discipleship is just a church word for following Jesus. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus, goes where Jesus would go, loves the people Jesus would love, just walks in his footsteps. So what does healthy discipleship look like? And I think it sort of looks like learning to play the guitar. Who plays guitar in here? Raise the hands. Okay, a lot of people. All right, all right. Do you just wake up one day and say, like, I'm going to play guitar, and then next day you're good at guitar? Anybody? You were good at guitar the next day? Okay, well, we have one prodigy and the rest of us who had to work for it. Um <laughs> When I first started playing the guitar, I started and stopped and started and stopped and started and stopped because it's really hard. And it's not just, like, hard to learn. It's also physically hard. Your fingers hurt. It takes a while to build up calluses. It's not easy, and it's something you have to stick to. I, didn't, I wasn't sure I would ever actually become a guitar player until I cut the tip of this finger off in, in Woods class in high school. So I don't touch a table saw ever again. <laughs> and, uh, and yet I still practice. I learned how to play chords with three fingers instead of four fingers. I'm like, okay, I think I'm actually going to stick with this. But then there's been seasons of my life where I just don't practice at all. And then Ty will be like, hey, you want to lead worship? And I'll be like, I got to remember how to play guitar. And even though I remember how to play guitar and I can get the job done, it doesn't come as easily. It's, it's, I can't play the complex things I used to be able to play when I practiced all the time. There was a season in life where I, I, I just loved guitar so much I would practice four hours a day. Now it's like, if I practice four hours a month, that's a good month. And so what happens is, yeah, I'm still a guitar player. I can still play it, but it's not as natural. It doesn't come as easy because I'm not putting in the work. And I want to say that that's one of the things I want to talk about today with discipleship is it's not just easy. You don't just wake up and it's natural to follow Jesus in every area of your life. It's something that takes work. And I want to talk about this in a process, a process, a cycle, a cycle of starting with inner work, working one-on-one with God, trying to figure out what does he want for me and from me. And from there, that inner work leads to transformation. My mindset is changed. The way I see, feel, and think about things is transformed, and that works its way into outer work. It makes its way into action. And the funny thing is, is that action shows us a piece of God that we didn't know before because we've experienced it in a new way, and then that inner work is even richer, and then it goes in this cycle. And I want to talk about what a healthy cycle could look like with some more specific practices and examples. So. That brings me to a place for us. This is, a, this is a contextual thing. What does this look like in our world, in our time and place? And so I'm going to start with a practice that I think is really important for our world in our time and place, and it's this. Embrace silence. Everybody just be as silent as you can for one second. Shh. Anybody uncomfortable yet? I am. Uh, <laughs> if you're like me, silence is not OK. I struggle with silence. This has been a problem for my whole life. If I'm alone by myself, I'm listening to a podcast. I'm listening to music. If I'm cooking in the kitchen, and I've got, I have I always have my AirPods in, I, I can't even sleep at night without some white noise to keep my mind from swimming with all the things that happened today and all the worries for tomorrow. And I know I'm not alone in this because this week I've seen people literally of every generation with at least one AirPod in in the middle of a conversation. And It's not just young people. Saw an older guy do that this week and I was like, that's new. And there's no judgment in that. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that that there's something maybe that we should think about with this. There's actually a song about this that I heavily relate to and I'm not going to rap today. I won't do it. Not with my dad fit on. (laughs) I don't want to cringe you out that much. So I'm just going to speak these lyrics. It's from a song called Car Radio by a group called 21 Pilots. It says, I have these thoughts, so often I ought to replace that slot, now I'm Dr. Seussing it, with what I once bought. Because somebody stole my car radio, and now I just sit in silence. I ponder of something terrifying, because this time there's no sound to hide behind. I find over the course of our human existence, one thing consists of consistence, and it's that we're all battling fear. Oh dear, I don't know if we know why we're here. Oh my, too deep, please stop thinking. I liked it better when my car had sound. Some of us are afraid of silence because we're afraid of what thoughts are going to come into our hearts and our minds. You know, especially if you've related to these past two sermons talking about mental health struggles or or traumatic experiences you've been through. Silence is scary because what if the memories come flooding back? What if the intrusive thoughts come? So we try to distract ourselves as much as possible, and I, I totally relate to that. Another struggle that we have is that we live in a culture that behaves as if the worst possible thing you can be is bored. We hate to be bored. We have this addiction to our phones. We have an addiction to to information or to some TV show or, or, you know, a million different things that just take our attention, pop culture and cat memes. I'll bring the cat memes back later. But in reality, we are overstimulated, and we've rewired our brains to the point where we actually experience boredom almost like pain. It's not good. It's not healthy. And all that being said, I think these are exact reasons why we need to embrace silence and practice silent prayer. This is the practice I want to introduce to, to do this inner work with a silent prayer. We just listen. You may say a few words here and there if you're prompted by the Spirit, but the only words you need to say is, God, what is it you want to say to me? And then listen. Silence. No music, no phone, no distractions, just silence. And I want to invite you to start this. Actually, I want to invite you to start this if you haven't already. Try silent daily prayer for one month. I think if you can stick with it for a whole month, you'll actually uh, see the benefit of this and you'll stick with it longer, but try it for one month. And why one month? Well, two reasons. One, when you first start, if this is not a thing that you do regularly, you're probably going to be bored. Rich Viotis, in his book uh, called The Deeply Formed Life, said this about silent prayer. He said, silent prayer is often uneventful. It's what I refer to as normalized boredom. In a society driven by sensory stimulation, distraction, and activity, silent prayer is an alien practice. It's not from this world. I hope that encourages you. I'm often in conversation with people who lament that nothing earth-shattering happens when they are still in silence, and I usually say, join the club. Think of boredom during silent prayer as an act of purification. In this uneventful moment, God purifies us of the false God of good feelings, While good feelings are gifts, they can easily become ends in themselves. We can move from worshiping the living God to worshiping our spiritual experiences. This is a fine line we must be mindful of. The ever-urgent need for people growing in relationship with God is the willingness to endure moments that are far from inspirational. I love that. I love that. One, because that's been my experience too, but... But it makes me feel better. Okay, I didn't experience this life-shattering or life-altering, amazing experience. I'm not alone in that. Boredom is okay. Not everything has to be epic. When you start practicing silent prayer, you'll go, oh, man, I was expecting this great spiritual experience, but instead I was bored. That's okay. Try it for a month. It won't always be like that. Stick with it. The second reason I invite you to to do this for a month is is because it, it retrains our souls and even our bodies to lean into the mundane. Discipleship is not about ecstatic and amazing experiences. Those things are often really good motivators. They're catalysts for following Jesus, but they don't sustain our faith. Part of discipleship is meeting with Jesus daily in the mundane and the ordinary. The deepness of a relationship with Christ is built in the little by little everyday stuff of life. And that's true of any relationship, right? Any relationship starved of quality time is not going to survive or be healthy. It's it's the cumulative benefits of daily faithfulness of silent prayer. You're going to begin to hear from God. Some people hear from God in in an audible way. I don't usually, but I I do get these promptings that I know. He's tapping me on the shoulder to say, listen to this. He invites us to, to, to listen to him to hear his voice, and to, to begin to have healing. Healing from the things that we're usually trying to avoid when we try to avoid silence. He wants us to give a vision for what he wants for us and from us. And this is a practice that we get from Jesus himself. He often went alone, away from the distractions, to pray and hear from God. And one example in Luke 5 has always stood out to me. It says this, Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that the crowds of people came to hear him to, and to be healed of their sickness. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Amidst all the noise, even the good stuff, this work that needed to be done that he was sent to do, even in the midst of that, Jesus knew he needed to disconnect from all of it, to be alone with God, to hear God's voice. And if Jesus needed this, and certainly I need this, So I wanna encourage you, practically, try this. Embrace silence. Oops, let's go back. Embrace silence. Just start with a few minutes a day, if that's all you can do. But I wanna say this, your environment matters. Find a place where you can actually find peace, a place without a ton of stimulation. I've heard people often say like, I do my quiet time alone in the car. Yo, my soul is not at peace in the car. It's too much stimulus, and the potential for road rage or a jump scare when one of those motorcycles comes between two lanes on the highway, it's not a place of peace. So I would encourage you, it's someplace still, someplace where you don't have to be on alert, right? And you just sit and say, Lord, what do you want to say to me? And I want to say this, as you're doing it, follow your emotions, pay attention to what you feel. Why am I feeling this way, God. Is there some healing work that I need to do? Is there a relationship that needs my attention? And that's where these feelings are coming from. Pay attention to the things that distract you. God, is this thing coming to mind because this is an area in my life I need to work on? Is this thing coming to mind because it has taken up an outsized part of my life and I need to dial back? Am I feeling lost without my smartphone? And is that a sign that too much of my life is wrapped up in that device? Take stock of those those distractions and go there. Let God speak into them. That's the invitation to do some inner work, an invitation to be versus do. It's it's a reminder, reminder to take stock of who we are because who we are is more important than what we do. Try silent prayer for one month and a little bit each day. See how the Lord wants to heal you, to speak to you and invite you into a closer walk with himself. The next thing, that we do, that's the inner work, and that needs to start working its way into transformation. And this is what I would say is, don't compartmentalize. Now, I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute, but, but it, this really st- stands out to me from a passage of scripture where Jesus is, uh, he kind of always gets upset with religious leaders. And it's easy to judge those religious leaders until I remember I'm a religious leader and I should probably like, make sure that I'm hearing his warnings for myself. And it's easy to, to, to just judge those religious leaders. But what they do often is they're trying to faithfully follow God. And, and, and they, they're doing that in their own experience, in their time and place. Their experiences and their culture shapes the way they are trying to follow God. But then they, they equate. They say our way of following Jesus is the way of following Jesus. Our way of following Jesus in our time and place then gets universalized. Everyone should do it this way. And I think we in the church are guilty of that often as well. It's why every generation of Christians thinks that the next one is leading the world to hell in a handbasket. And yet the church is still here 2,000 years later. Anyway, we, we can fall into that same trap, but these religious leaders, they, they sometimes are so obsessed with their traditions, their, their contextual way of following God, that they missed more important things. In one situation, they're, they're upset with the disciples because they were breaking the tradition of their elders because they didn't wash their hands before they ate. And I want to say, first of all, gross. I'm with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in this one, that's just gross. Stop, no, I'm just kidding. Um, But he answers them by calling out their own hypocrisy. He's like, you're worried about whether they wash their hands and meanwhile, you're convincing people to take the money that they should be spending on taking care of their elderly parents and give it to the work of the religious institution? What about honor your mother and father? He's saying, like, you're worried about whether they wash their hands, and you just don't care about people at all because you're obsessed with money? And so then his disciples are like, hey, man, they seem to be pretty offended by that. Uh, what, what, what do you mean by all of this? And, and Jesus says, you know, they, that what goes into our mouths doesn't defile us, but what comes out of our mouths doesn't. And they're like, what do you mean? And this is what he says in Matthew 15. He starts off with a good roast. Are you still so dull? He's done. He's not patient with these guys anymore. (laughs) Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. And these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. It's going to give them a virus, but whatever. You see, these religious leaders actually compartmentalized. They had this intricate religious system, and it was so particular that, and yet they missed the main point. They had these categories of holy versus profane. You know, modern scholars have said sacred versus secular. They thought they were pleasing God because of the busyness of their detailed religious practice, but they couldn't see how God wanted holiness and the way that they dealt with money and people. They had their religious compartment and their money compartment, and they didn't want the two to overlap. And this is a constant temptation for us. We have many aspects of our lives, and it's easy to have blind spots. Maybe for you, it's money. You know, you attend church regularly, you study your Bible, you do all the, the, the religious you know, checklist that you're supposed to do, but you don't let that spill into your finances. It's become an idol for you. You've got compartment A for God and compartment B for money, and you don't let the two meet. Or maybe it's work, whether it's an unhealthy you know, uh, obsession with work or, or it's the way that your, your character is at work. And the scriptures tell us, Paul tells us to work as if you're working for the Lord. Work as if the Lord is present with you because he is and he sees your level of integrity and he sees how you treat people. Or maybe it's a relationship and you need to treat that person that you're with like they are God's son or daughter and he's watching because they are and he is. Or maybe it's a personality or behavior. You can't have a version of yourself at church that's different from the version of yourself at home, work, or school. And this is actually something that kept me from the Christian faith for a couple of years. You know, I would go to the church. I was kind of forced to. And I'm like, okay, whatever. And I would go to the youth group and I'd hang out. And theres uh, I remember this one dude who, uh, um, he like always sang solos in the choir. And then the first time I ever hung out with him after, uh, after church, he was like, hey, you wanna get drunk? I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, and I was, I was a, not, not exactly a saint, but I was just shocked that it was the choir boy. And then I would go to the FCA meetings, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes meetings, and I would, I would hang out there and, and I'd be like, that guy's very different in the prayer circle than he is in geometry, that's not the same dude, right? And I was no better. I wasn't even a Christian, but I would lead worship at the FCA m- meetings because I was like, Maybe the girls will think I'm cute. Right? Gross. High school and middle school boys in the room, don't do it. Just don't. It's weird. (laughs) Be better than me. I say this to our young people, but I say this to all of us. Don't compartmentalize. Don't have a God compartment and then have other compartments of our lives that we don't let God touch. There's no divide between the sacred and the secular. Everything is holy. I urge this for you and me because, like I said, our witness to a watching world depends on it. If I call myself a Christian and then speak and behave and treat people and do things in a way that's not in alignment with Christ, then I damage not only my reputation but his too. I remember saying to a group of kids that were in my youth group that that were bullying people at school, I just said, hey, please don't tell people you're a Christian. And they were like, what? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because what you're doing is not representing Jesus. Like, continue to work on your faith. I encourage you to be here and let's talk talk this stuff through. But please, don't tell anybody at school you're a Christian. And luckily, they stuck around and we worked through it and they grew. But I, I was pretty harsh with them. Discipleship isn't just checking off some religious boxes. It's about being a witness to the good news that, it, that Jesus is Lord. Disciples make disciples, and they do so by living out a faith where every area is being transformed into Christ-likeness. That doesn't mean we're perfect, it doesn't mean we don't make mistakes, but we're inviting God to every compartment of life. I also urge this for you because if we compartmentalize, we actually miss out on so much of God's activity in our own lives. If we limit God's work in our lives to Sunday and Bible studies, we're missing out on the abundant, rich, and fulfilling life that he wants for us. Having no closed off compartments, this is the transformation. We take the inner work and we allow it to start spilling into our character, changing us, and then it makes its way into action, changing our mindset. All of life is under Jesus who is Lord. So then what does that outer work look like? Look like, and this is one of my favorite phrases. I've recommended uh, this book before, but it's this: do the next right thing. It's such a simple yet powerful concept, and it it, you know the 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 comes from this book called The Next Right Thing by Emily P. Freeman, and uh, she also has a podcast where she explores this further. It's 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 just a great way of thinking through how do I follow Jesus today? What's the next right thing? We are in an age of uncertainty. And in reality, we've always been in an age of uncertainty, but all the turmoil and change of the past decade has, all it has done is torn down the illusion that life is predictable. And if you follow a formula, you can control the outcomes of your life. And accepting, embracing uncertainty can lead to anxiety, but I actually think it, it's a key ingredient to embracing deeper faith. When we we commit to doing the next right thing, what we're saying is I don't know what the steps two, three, four, and five are, but I know this is the right next step for me, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to see where God leads. When we embrace uncertainty, we lean into faith because God has always worked with people one step of faith at a time. He never paints the whole picture. He calls people to one step of faith. When he called Abraham, he didn't tell him all the stuff he was going to go through to eventually get this promised land, right? To, to, to have this place of his own where his descendants would multiply and he would be the father of a great nation. He didn't tell him steps two, three, four, and five. He just said, Abraham, do this thing. And Abraham's like, okay, I got it, God. Moses. He doesn't tell Moses the whole story. He doesn't tell him, hey, you're not actually going to get to enter this promised land and you're going to wander in the desert for 40 years. He just says, go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And if he gave Moses the whole picture, he might not have gone. He might not have taken that first step of faith because he didn't know he'd have the strength to get through it. He didn't know what God was going to do in the midst of all that. He just took one step of faith. Cat meme time. Step one, cat pictures. Step two, I don't know. Step three, prophet. It's one of my favorite memes. If you don't get it, it's totally fine. (laughs) But it actually is a decent understanding of the Christian faith. Some people like think about that, like, okay, I know I want to go into business and do this, and I know I want to do this, but I don't know anything in between, right? All right, so I'll get this guy off the screen because he's distracting. But, uh, (laughs) But there's a big question mark in discipleship. There's a big question mark in discipleship. We know that we don't control the future. We take step one, and we know what step three is, and that's life with Christ. And there's a big question mark in step two. And I think we need to be okay with that. Think about Jesus' 12 disciples. Where they were at in their understanding of Jesus, life, death, eternity, where they were at when he first called them, if he had said, hey, guess what? I'm on a path that's going to lead me to the cross, and most of you, you're going to get killed too. They'd have been like, I'm going to stick with my fishing business. That sounds, no thank you, right? Right? So he doesn't paint the whole picture for them. He says, come and follow me, and they do. And with hindsight, even though they may have lost their, their lives for their faith, they, have, they probably would have said, totally worth it. I would do it again 10 out of 10 times. Because look at what we got to participate in. Look at what, the healing we got to see. Look at the freedom we got to see for people. Look at the miracles we got to participate in. It's worth it, and even though this world could take away a lot from me, they couldn't take away Jesus and the full life and eternal life that I have because of him. It's worth it. It's all because they said yes. Even with the uncertainty of what comes next, steps two, three, four, and five, when step one came, they said yes. And then they did it again and again every day. What's the next right thing? There's a big question mark in discipleship. We know what the end goal is. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's being in his presence now and for all of eternity. We don't know what step two, three, four, five, and six always are, and that's okay. I also want to say this. This is helpful if we can redefine what we think of success in life. I want to say something that I've said around here all the time. I say it in Discipleship Pathway, but faithfulness is what equals success for Christians. Faithfulness equals success. Success. In other areas of life, we're told that success equals certain outcomes, and that feels comfortable because it gives us a level of certainty. If I do this, then this will happen. If I do step one and step two, I know we'll profit. If I work hard, I will have success. The problem is, who defines what success is? What does success actually look like? It's a moving target to begin with, and, and how will I know when I'm successful? And success isn't permanent. Once we've achieved one goal, there's always the next one. Anybody ever see that press conference with Tom Brady after he won his last Super Bowl? The guy's the winningest quarterback of all time. He'll go down as the greatest football player to ever play the game. He's got the most Super Bowl rings, blah, blah, blah. And he sat there at the podium and he just said, I thought it would be better. I thought it would be more fulfilling. He had reached the pinnacle, everything he had dedicated his life to for this one thing. And when he got it, he was like, dang, it's not all it was cracked up to be. So defining success in terms of achievement is temporary, and who, who actually gets to define it? But what if we change our definition of success in life and in faith to faithfulness? Faithfulness is taking the next right step, even when we don't know what the outcome is going to be. We actually give up control of the outcome and say, God, this is in your hands. I trust you. I trust you so much that I'm going to take this step of faith and believe that you will honor my faithfulness. So that's where this last verse comes in. How do we know? How do we determine what the next right thing is? And Jesus repeated himself during his last meal with his friends a bunch of times. And this is a good summary of the message he wanted to leave them with before he went on to be crucified. He said this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. That's what it's all about. That's how the cycle from inner work to outer work completes. The next right thing always looks like love for people. That's what it always looks like. That's always the next right thing. We start with silence and we say, God, speak to me. Who do you want me to be? And we then take that inner work and we apply it to every area of our life. No compartments. Actually, more accurately, every compartment is underneath one big compartment. Jesus is Lord. And when we do that, we can see how God is working in every area of our lives. And while we don't know what comes next, we can do the next right thing. We can enter every situation and ask, what does it look like to bring the love of Jesus into this place, into these relationships? That answer isn't always perfectly clear, but at least we know what question we can be asking. How do we bring love into this place? Holy Spirit, show us the way. And the more we practice, the easier it is to hear from God because now we know what to listen for it's silence. My primary job as a disciple, according to Jesus, is to love people. So God, who do you want me to show love? And how should that love take shape? How do I demonstrate it? All the compartments of life we now offer up to the Lord Jesus. And we can ask the question, how do I bring the love of Christ into this place or relationship? And that informs for us what the next right thing is. And on and on the cycle goes. And this is a picture of what healthy spirituality is healthy discipleship can look like. This cycle of inner work that changes us, changes our character, until we're shaped into people who bring the love of Jesus with us everywhere we go. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And they're going to sing one of my favorite hippie worship songs called Instrument of Peace. Uh, but As they do that, I want to close our series as we started it. Um, we, we did a spiritual practice of 60 seconds of silence. And then another 60 seconds of silence. And we're going to practice that again today. But t- this time, I want you to spend the first 60 seconds just clearing your head. What are the things that are distracting you? Just kind of breathing out all the noise and distractions. In the second 60 seconds, I want you to just ask this question. Whatever it is, whether you got something today or you're going to chill today, but get back to the normal routine tomorrow, ask the question, how do I bring the love of Jesus into that place to those people. Let's do that together. I'm going to get my timer out. First 60 seconds, you don't have to think or say anything or pray anything. Um, You can just ask God to clear your mind of any distractions. Let's go to silence now. That was 60 seconds. Show of hands who felt like that was a really long time. Show of hands how many people felt like that was really quick. Everybody else has a perfect internal clock. I said that same joke last time. No one laughed then too. All right. (laughs) You shut up, Ty. Uh, (laughs) um, (laughs) All right, so just kind of cleansing minute just to clear our minds for a little bit. Now let's go to another 60 seconds of asking God, who are you calling me to love in the next 24 hours this next week? How can I show them the love of Jesus in this next week? Just take some time, 60 seconds to ask that question and listen, listen for God's voice. Sixty more seconds of just hearing from the voice of God, and um, I encourage you, today's October 8th, do, do at least that, two minutes of silence a day till November 8th, and just listen for the voice of God and see how that conversation builds over the next month. But hopefully what he speaks to you in these next days is a very clear image of who you're called to love and, and how you can love them in a way that looks like Jesus. And we actually have a great opportunity next week when we do the missional equipping gathering because we always ask the question, how do you see God moving in our midst? And this week, just by doing those silent prayers, you might see that. Not to say, hey, look at what a great job I did loving people, but to say, hey, I listened to the Holy Spirit, and man, did he show up. So I'd be super excited if next week when we we come in here and we talk about how have you seen God moving. We've got stories from this week because we chose to follow Jesus faithfully in loving others. With that, let me close in prayer and then we're going to worship together. Lord, we just, we want to hear your voice. We want the real thing, Lord. We don't want uh, somebody's interpretation of you, even though we're limited and, and that's hard. Um, God, we don't want a religious structure that has us checking all the boxes and yet we somehow miss out on the bigger picture. We want, we want to meet with Jesus We want to go where he would go, love the way that he would love. Help us to do that, Lord. Fill us with your Holy Spirit day in and day out as we listen. And there's so much yelling and noise in our lives, and sometimes it's hard to hear that whisper, that still small voice of the Spirit saying, follow me. But, God, we pray that we would make room, make room to drown out the noise and to hear from you. And, Lord, as we do this, we go out into a world where people need the love of Jesus Show us. Show us how to be like him, how to love like him. We love you, and that's what motivates to do this, but we also know that we love because you first loved us. Help us to carry that on. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.